0: they're 17 and making kind of a terrible decision like this is going to blow up in their face and the bad decisions that they're making and the discomfort that they're feeling pushes them toward taking greater risks in their lives and ultimately it's an uncomfortable and cringy part of their growth but it is necessary
1: hello and welcome to Unrambling. About stories and storytelling. I'm Fae Fix. And I'm Charlene. And this week we're going to be discussing Alice Wu's The Half of It. Before we get into that, we do want to take a quick moment to welcome our latest patron, Kari Busik. We appreciate the support. If you would like to become a Patreon, help support the show, and get extra content, you can sign up at patreon.com forward slash unramblings for as little as a dollar. You get access to things like these live recordings where you can chime in with questions and criticisms and all that fun stuff. Mm -hmm. So before we delve into it, we'll obviously be spoiling all of the movie, half of it. If we have any other spoiler warnings or content warnings, we'll drop those in right here. Hello from the future. Weirdly, we have a couple of very light spoilers for Beauty and the Beast. That's about it.
0: As for content warnings, there's brief discussions of mild racism and homophobia. I think that's it.
1: Yep. Back to the past. Welcome back. I'm told it's my turn to do the summary of the work this time, so I don't think we need to go into huge detail on this, so very briefly, it's a modern day retelling of Serrano de Bergerac, in which a guy asks someone else to write letters to their crush, Crush, that's a good word, um, to woo them, but hilarity ensues. This has a fun little twist on it, because the guy is asking a girl to write the letters, and there's an LGBT element in that relationship. It keeps getting built that way. I see that that's how it's described everywhere. Mm-hmm. And I think it probably sells the movie very short, as I think that there's a lot more depth to it about the journey that Ellie, Asta, and Paul all go on to sort of self-discovery and branching out and expanding their horizons. So it ends up with nobody getting together with... Any of the other people and all going off to do the things that they would really want to do if society didn't hold them back in the way that it has been.
0: Mm -hmm. I think that's a pretty good summary.
1: Thank you. Very shallow.
0: I mean, it's a summary.
1: Yeah. Okay. So let's get into it. So when our friend was like, hey, you should go and watch this movie and do an episode on it. And then they said, it's a teen romance. One of the first questions that we had to ask was, Yeah, okay, but how much cringe is there in there? Because we don't really do cringe. And they said not as much as some teen romances. Dodging the question. The movie has some very uncomfortable moments in it.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Like social discomfort.
1: Yes. But I think that those are well done in that I think they represent something important within the story.
0: Yeah. I don't think you could tell the story without them. Not in a way that would actually land. Yeah. Like, discomfort and the necessity of discomfort and bad decisions sometimes is kind of important.
1: It's a part of their growing, certainly.
0: Yeah. I think cringy, like, social discomfort moments like that, that you and I are so sensitive to, and I know a lot of people we know have similar feelings about scenes like that, I think that relates very strongly to this kind of through line of the fact that, like, they're 17 and making kind of a terrible... Decision Like, this is going to blow up in their face. There's no way this ends well. And it's all very uncomfortable, but it's uncomfortable for them, too. They know that this can't go on forever. And the bad decisions that they're making and the discomfort that they're feeling pushes them toward taking greater risks in their lives, like for their lives, and ultimately sets them up to make more of themselves than they would have otherwise. And it's an important part of their growth. It's an uncomfortable and cringy part of their growth, but it is necessary. Like, if they never did anything socially uncomfortable or took any risks in the way that they did, they would all end up in this path of least resistance life that each of them kind of sketches out early on. Aster would have married the most popular guy in school who's also sort of the town darling, and that she doesn't even really seem to be all that into but like her parents really like him and he likes her and it's sort of a gaston situation where like no one in town can think of any good reason that you wouldn't want to be with him kind of a thing and so she would just end up marrying him and having kids and staying in this small town for her whole life
1: you say that trig is like the town darling and that her parents really love him and like he's very popular at school for being who he is i guess but like, I don't think Asta's parents like him. I think that they like the fact his family is rich. Like oh, even sure. like you hear the other girls at school talking about like how great it is that Asta gets to be with Trigg because mm-hmm. well, Trigg's family like owns half the town and who else would you want to be with than the person who owns half the town? Like- yeah.
0: But so she would have been set up for this like pretty cushy and unchallenging lifestyle where she was just kind of the wife of the person who owns half the town and presumably a soccer mom and stuff. But what she ends up pursuing instead is art school and the chance to be an artist and pursue the things that she's actually interested in doing, even though that creates more risks.
1: Yeah, it's sort of fascinating how they manage to have a really four characters all start off in such sort of shitty, confined social norm ideals and have them all break out of that. Just through that, like, deciding to make a more decisive step. Mm -hmm. Paul, Ellie, and Astor obviously all do that as part of the main thing. But Ellie's dad also makes some bold choices to move on with his life. It's unclear exactly to what extent that goes. But at the end of the movie, we see that he's using the automatic train signals that he doesn't trust at the start. Mm -hmm. He's pushed Ellie to go to college further away because he doesn't need to be holding her back um seems to sort of come to some sort of peace with a lot of that
0: and he's clearly been working on his english because you see him practicing it like using english a lot more at the end of the movie Mm. which was a thing that held him back professionally is the fact that he didn't have as much facility with english and his accent was very thick so that's something else that he has decided to work more on and potentially remove that barrier because he has the phd that is required because that was the thing Ellie says is like someone was promoted over him who was less suited for the job just because he could speak English without an accent and so that's the thing where like this was supposed to be his jumping off point and he just sort of stalled out and so i think that's a sign that we're supposed to read as him deciding to also try and push for something greater in his professional life
1: yeah i think that particularly at the start of the movie like every shot is very gray mhm It's a really great choice to have the film feel very dull at the beginning, where all the characters are in this position of just, they're just going to keep on going. And there was one moment in the film that really, like when I first saw it, I thought was stupidly ridiculous. And it's the Paul making the football point. Touchdown? Is it a touchdown?
0: I think it's a touchdown. Or is it
1: a goal? I don't know. Does he have to, like, put it down? I think there are
0: goals and touchdowns. Like, not every... There are points for other things than touchdowns, I believe.
1: Okay. This is not a sports podcast. It's not
0: a sports Very Um, clearly.
1: (laughs) When Paul takes the ball into the point-scoring area (laughs) and scores the points, and they yell that this is the first goal they've scored in 15 years yeah and like the whole school is making this huge deal and putting up banners of he put us on the board like they didn't score any other points in that game
0: they didn't it, win certainly
1: it was the one thing like i think they at it was still like 42 to 6 or something mm-hmm. i don't understand football scoring and, like, at first, that seems like a hilarious joke. Like, we just had to pause the film to laugh about that for a and moment. And be
0: like, what? They had, n- That team hasn't scored in 15 years? Like, not even hasn't won in 15 years, but has not scored in 15 years.
1: But like, it does such a great job of illustrating the point of the movie. Yes. Because your reaction to they didn't score in 15 years... Certainly, my reaction is, why did they still have a team? Why did they bother? Why was it worthwhile? Mm-hmm. And kind of the answer there is it isn't. and that to I guess how can I say this without sounding like a dick. To to reach your full potential, you need to branch out, do something different, and if you just keep going in the same rut, you're not gonna get anywhere. Yeah. I feel like there was a more intelligent way of saying that. So if you want to try again, feel free. Yeah,
0: I mean and I I want to push back in some ways because like I understand team sports are supposed to in some ways be their own reward in that, you know, you're learning a lot of very important life skills and things like that in terms of Working as a team and relying on each other and a lot of social skills and things like that. But with the way especially, like, funding works and organization works, like, at least a team that doesn't, like, bring anything to the school in terms of recognition and things like that tends to be pretty undervalued and underfunded and under-involved. Like, it doesn't attract good players, etc. Which, you know, so if you weren't even scoring any points for a while, like, that could potentially, like, feed in on itself. But so, like, there's a part of me that's like, well, I mean, I guess if they have a team because they still had kids who wanted to play. Or maybe because it's a cultural thing, which I think is probably more what they're going for, of, like, no, you have a football team. Like, it's just what you do. And that would go along more with what the overall point of the movie is. Like, you can't just do things because it's what you're sort of expected to do and your heart's not in it and it's not actually what you want. It's just the path of least resistance, trying to not do it or to do something else would be more of a risk than you're willing to take.
1: Yeah, I think that it depends on how you're looking at the football team in the movie, though, because I don't think that the movie is dealing with the football team as a football team. No. Like, it's not a movie about football. Right. And you never actually see Paul with the rest of his teammates or anything. Like, there's a couple of drills where he's running, but that's Mm -hmm. about it.
0: And when it's noted that he's improved a lot with his running because he's been chasing
1: Ellie on her, Ellie bike. On
0: her bike, he's been running to keep up with a cyclist for hours you know, while they're chatting. And so it's a case of his friendship has made him better at football.
1: Right, which is the thing is that it's very much a plot device rather than a sport within the thing. It's the side effect of him pushing to be better, to make, quote, bold strokes. It's had this knock-on effect that's, Largely symbolic.
0: Yeah. Like well, it... it could
1: have been anything within the film. It happens sure. to be a football team because it's a story about a small American town and small American towns care about football. Mm-hmm. I understand as an expert on small American towns. <laughs> uh.
0: Yeah. It's an, an illustration of working to pursue what you want and, you know, stretch yourself and grow in any area. Like it improves you as a whole all of our experiences aren't necessarily so that we'll be the best or the expert or do something really great in that one experience. Like we become better people and more well-rounded people and develop confidence and efficacy and the courage to keep making choices and move forward.
1: It's almost an interesting choice that Paul's improvement comes in the form of he's become fitter and runs more and therefore can run all the way into the end zone. Yes, And not, say, an improved communication with his teammates. Hmm. And I think it's because the film is looking at all of them as individuals Mm -hmm. growing on their own out of that community. Sure. As getting out of that societal trap that they're stuck in.
0: Yeah. Well, I also really like that... Much like with the overall plot where, like, no one ends up getting the girl or any of those things that you would expect as, like, a metric of success for something like this. They don't win the game. They score a point. They make progress. They are demonstrably improving and developing in skill. And that's exactly what happens through this weird three-way relationship that they kind of have where they improve in their communication skills and in their social and emotional skills and in their courage and confidence to pursue things that they want, but they don't actually specifically achieve any of those things. They just get to a point where they're moving forward. But I like how well that maps onto the fact that they also don't start a relationship at the
1: end in any way. Well, I like the They all start relationships that aren't romantic. Yes, that's what I I mean. Like,
0: like the stated goal at the beginning, the stated goal at the beginning of a game is to win in this kind of scenario, very pared down. And the stated goal at the beginning of this endeavor is for Paul, or I guess Ellie, when she also, since she also has a crush on Aster, like the default idea of what would be winning would be getting the girl, which is super objectifying. But you know that does not happen. They do not win the game. They do not get Aster, but they grow as people and have things happen that show that they are improving.
1: Now that you mentioned it, actually, like early on, when Aster comes back with the, uh, oh, well, I wouldn't have plagiarized. Mm -hmm. Ellie's reaction is, okay, game on. Yes. Like that we're going to play this game. And and she gets a point on the board at the end, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: I guess is the point there.
0: Yeah, she kisses her. She makes her interest known. She makes the bold stroke. It doesn't lead to, like, the great romance of the ages, at least not at this point. But it does mark a turning point of now they're on the board. Now she's on the board. Now she's made a move. She's never made a move before. Yeah. And Aster's acknowledged that she might be open to a lesbian relationship. That's not something that had been acknowledged before. So they're both, like, taking a step.
1: Yeah, and we should talk about Aster for a moment as well, because she's... An interesting figure in the... We mentioned this is a modern-day telling of Cyrano de Bergerac, which I know because I know the cultural reference of Cyrano de Bergerac, but I've never actually read it. So, Same. It's my assumption that in situations like that, the object of affection is more of an object of affection and less well-characterized. Asta does very much get a very strong voice in this and gets an opportunity to tell us the struggles that she's in, and the way that she's trapped within this society. Right. And it gives an extra sort of window. She has her whole speech about the problem of being pretty is that other people want you to be like them.
0: Right. They kind of want you as this pretty person to co-sign their choices and be part of a block with them to validate their existence and their choices.
1: And it's interesting because Ellie and Paul are both sort of a little bit outsider- positions
0: ellie far more than paul though
1: yeah although it's very strange because you do see paul interact with so few other people
0: well he's part of the football team he clearly interacts with those people and you see him with his family but it does seem like he tends to be in a crowd but sort of peripheral and not really as engaged like somewhat overlooked
1: the conversation tends to go oh hey paul Mm Mm-hmm. that's it yeah but aster is very much sort of absorbed into that group very heavily,
0: mm-hmm. but
1: clearly doesn't feel like she's a part of it.
0: Yeah, it's somewhat orbiting her. It has sort of absorbed her, but she's just sort of there.
1: You mentioned earlier that Trig seems kind of like a guest-on character. Yeah. From Beauty and the Beast. When we were talking earlier, you mentioned the idea that you weren't terribly comfortable with the fact that it's never really acknowledged that she's cheating on Trigg.
0: Yeah, but I also am not really sure if we're supposed to draw the conclusion that she never actually agreed to be dating him in the first place that he might have just assumed that his interest meant her consent to be in that relationship
1: yeah she is very much dragged along but into this situation where she's kind of a trophy kind of maybe being pushed into effectively an arranged marriage Mm -hmm. and for her it's not just about a story of her making a bold stroke it's in a story about her actually finding some agency in her own life
0: yeah it's like she's in this position that trig is also in where he's got all this privilege and money and everyone loves him and because he's interested in her it's basically like okay you've got the ticket to easy street and why would you not take that it's what everyone in town is singing about with like bell and gaston of like why wouldn't she go and marry him he believes it's a foregone conclusion that she's gonna marry him and he just has to say the right words or convince her but that's clearly going to happen and she contrary to aster has decided that that's not what she wants and aster seems to know that that's not what she wants but she has so many other voices around telling her it's what she should want that it seems like too big of a thing to fight the current
1: yeah And I think it really helps to set up the way that all of these people are learning the same lesson about needing to make some form of decisive action and, like, branch out from what society expects from them. But they're all coming from surprisingly diverse places Mm -hmm. because she's in this position of she needs to learn how to break out of this because she's just getting swept along. Mm -hmm. Whereas Paul is already trying.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: He doesn't need convincing. Yeah. Yeah. He needs to have his horizons opened to understand what is beyond and to understand his limitations I don't as know. they stand.
0: I, would I, I agree with you that he's already trying because he's already experimenting with new recipes. He's the he's, one that
1: takes the agency to say, I want to write letters that sound better to Asta.
0: Right. He's the one who is already striving to get the things he wants. Not only does he know what those things are, he is working toward them. He's in the phase of like recognizing the barriers He's not at the point quite of overcoming all of them himself, and that's a big part of what he needs is he needs the support and the confidence to do that, to confront his mom about changing the recipe and to improve his own communication skills rather than trying to rely on someone else to communicate for him. But he's the one who's the furthest along emotionally and in terms of confidence and commitment. And he's also the only white male in this trio, which might have something to do with that. Like, he's gotten a lot more messages from society that do indicate that you can do that than either of the female protagonists.
1: Yeah, that's that's a fair point.
0: He's got that idea that a lot of stories tell boys in particular of, like, if you just try hard, and, like, that American Dream idea, if you try hard enough, you can get whatever you want. And he was saying, like, love is how hard you work for it. Whereas Aster and... Ellie and Ellie in particular don't have that view. They recognize that you have to commit and make the bold stroke, but it might not work. You might ruin your good painting and not get something great out of it. Yeah. Which is a reference that's constantly made in the film for people who haven't watched it yet. And it's basically this idea of like, you aren't going to get anywhere extraordinary unless you take a risk, but risks aren't necessarily going to pay off. That's why they're risks. He doesn't believe that. He thinks dogged persistence will get you somewhere, which is that of that perspective at the beginning of he's gonna get the girl
1: yeah i don't think it's too much to say that it's not a coincidence that the point at which he decides to try and kiss ellie Mm -hmm. um having felt that he's put all the effort in and like has had this realization that they should clearly be together it happens in front of a vending machine Mm. with that sort of consistent analogy about like the friend zone and, like...
0: If I put in the right stimulus, I should get the right response.
1: Women aren't sex vending machines.
0: Right. And I think that a big part of that, too, is, again, like, a lot of the messages that boys get about relationships and about feelings and about emotional support and sources of emotional support is, particularly in the last several decades, I mean, it wasn't always this way, but boys are socialized to not have emotionally vulnerable friendships and they're not socialized to necessarily think of girls as viable friends rather than romantic partners. And so there are a lot of boys and a lot of men out there who only get emotional support from their romantic partner. And so anyone who's providing them emotional support, it can be easy for them to mistake that for somebody interested in a romantic partnership. And I think that's kind of what happens there. He's realized that Ellie is emotionally very important to him, emotionally very supportive. He's Found out that she has been working behind the scenes to try and help him with his dream. So he's gotten that mixed message of, oh, well, she ticks all these boxes that are labeled for a girlfriend to me, according to society. So clearly she wants me to kiss her and that's what she wants us to be my girlfriend. And she's like, no, yeah. we're friends and that's where that needs to be. And of course, in true teen romance Drama fashion—it's exactly when Astro walks in, etc. So.
1: Of of course. Yeah. So you had. Why was she that. there? Who knows?
0: <laughs> She's really also likes Yakult's the yogurt drink everyone loves in this. By everyone, I mean Paul and Ellie, <laughs> and the football team.
1: The coach, the, I think, is the big yeah, part.
0: The coach, yeah, the football team.
1: I think the last thing for the um, like overarching story, though, before we get more into some of the characters, is it has a very sort of strict act structure. That's hard to miss because you have this sort of little philosophy quote card come up at regular intervals. Yeah. You have that full philosophy introduction. mm mm-hmm. um, Where you have the stuff from Plato's Symposium about the origin of love and the beings with four arms and four legs that get split in half and yeah. try and find themselves.
0: Along with a like drawn rendition that's very reminiscent of the origin of love sequence in Hedwig and the Angry Inch, which is great. So, and I imagine that was an intentional homage.
1: It's entirely possible. It's hard to say whether they draw from the same source or from each other. So,
0: I'm but. assuming both. It is also an LGBT film. And, I mean, that circle is kind of small.
1: Yeah. The part about the origin of love clearly being fairly influential between being the introduction and presumably the name of the film being the half of it is in part in reference to the finding your other half that is not what this movie's about.
0: Yeah. But also, they're early in that first act, and when they're setting up the initial situation, it opens with this conversation about what is love? What does it mean?
1: And Ellie writing her paper on it.
0: Yeah. And Ellie, Ellie writing a paper on it, and then Ellie and Paul discussing it and having very different ideas. Really, Paul having a strong idea, and Ellie not knowing what she thinks love is, but knowing she doesn't think it's that.
1: Yeah. The sort of little philosophy things that drive the idea behind each section like whether it's the conversation about what love is or the uh the hell is other people thing right That i think is very well applied particularly with like the paul's understanding of it and being able to represent that to ellie those being fairly important but then i think the biggest thing i like about it is that the last quote that you get is attributed to ellie chu right and it's that move and growth from looking for the work of others as a way to try and understand your life, and in the case of that first stuff from Plato, saying, yeah, but that's not the way that it really is because this isn't how things are in high school, to getting to a point where you're branching out and having your own ideas and your own new ideas.
0: And the confidence to put those down and assert them. Yeah. I appreciate all three of those in particular, The way that it's not just those cards.
1: And sort of tying into those quotes there is there's the scene where they then go to the hot springs Mm -hmm. and are swimming that sort of ties all of that stuff together. There's a point where you can see that they're sort of lying in the water and reflecting down into themselves. So it looks like they have two faces and things like that, as if they are two parts Mm -hmm. of um, each of them. Presumably an intentional attempt to mimic that, plato idea but then ellie has that line that asta says oh whose quote is that Mm -hmm. she's like oh i don't know and then she says well then it's yours like i've decided this is this is your quote and it's that sort of first moment where she gets to be the creator of the idea instead of commenting on the idea yeah does that make sense
0: yeah it does and i appreciate that all of these philosophical markers through the story are also woven in through the body of it it's not like they're just there as like a reference to kind of spell it out although they yeah. sort of do there's obviously some more clear and intentional referencing of it with the conversation where like Ellie is trying to explain the Sartre ideas to Paul and she thinks he's not paying attention and so he then reframes it in terms of his own life to show that he does understand yeah but even beyond that you know pretty one to one and very I mean, a bit heavy-handed maybe, but like very obvious way of weaving it in. It's just that larger theme of the hell is other people thing being that other people's assumptions and the framework built by other people in the small community that they're in has formed all of these paths that they're all feeling trapped by or pushed down. For Aster, if she ends up going with just the way that everyone seems to think she should for her life to be best... That she will wake up in 30, 40 years regretting never having pursued her art and just having stayed in this small town with this guy that barely sees her except for the attention she can bring him because it was expected and not because she wanted it. It would be because of other people. And it's the same thing with Paul. Like, if he never does anything but make the same sausage his family has been making for generations— And never even tries to see if his other ideas will take off. It will be because of the expectations of other people.
1: Yeah. It's interesting how Ellie is the fuel for a lot of this stuff. I think the perspective that the film gives us is fascinating for this. Because a lot of it is told through Ellie's voice. Mm -hmm. And it's intriguing from that because she's writing the letters to Mm Asta. And you hear her reading them when... Asta should be imagining Paul's voice saying them, but it stays with that who wrote it sort of thing, which I think makes a certain amount of sense.
0: Mm-hmm. Because she's the main character. It's from her perspective, as you said. So she knows she wrote them, so it's in her voice.
1: But there's an extent to which Aster knows that she wrote them. Like She acknowledges mm-hmm. at the end that she kind of always knew. Yeah. And we get the idea that even though Ellie tries to write in different ways her voice comes through, it's a strong voice. Because there's the whole stuff with her teacher.
0: Yeah, because at the beginning of the film, the whole reason that Paul has sought her out to write the letters to Aster is because she writes term papers for people for money. And her English teacher totally knows, you know, which ones she's written, but she would rather read Ellie's writing than some of the other students and also just doesn't care that much about it. And so, but it, it is one of those things of like, you might think that you're obscuring your voice. But you really aren't. The
1: teenage dilemma of you think you're being clever and you're not.
0: Yeah. Sometimes it's just that the adults around you have decided that this is something that you need to deal with the consequences of. It needs to reach its logical conclusion. Those people will eventually be in a situation where they have to take a standardized test and they can't write for crap and they're going to fail. You know, like, <laughs> or they're going to be in college and they won't have an alley, but they'll pay someone else to do it. You know, the people who can pay their way out will always be able to pay their way out. And so nah, I can kind of understand it. I mean, from an educational ethics perspective, obviously it's not the move. But <coughs> but I can also understand why after years of it not ever amounting to anything, when you try to do something about it, being like, well, you know what? The kid probably needs some money and. practice for their voice and that's somebody who's actually maybe going to do something with it
1: Uh, but i was thinking when we were making the notes like we don't have as much to say about ellie in some of this despite the fact that she's our central character and the problem is that she she lays all of her ideas and concepts out on the line for us in a very concrete way in her writing Mm -hmm.
0: there's less to put together because she's already kind of done that for us
1: right so she's sort of putting out the spark that affects all the other characters in some very interesting ways. Mm-hmm. But her growth and her journey is very well telegraphed through those conversations with Asta. Mm-hmm. You know, you get the very strong signs of the the whole conversation that recurs about boldest strokes mm-hmm. um, and how that works with paintings. That Ellie and Asta very much have that to themselves, mm-hmm. I think. It's less about the other people for that. But you also have the um, aspect of... A lot of her stuff is told in ways that are either very direct, or if you want to look into it, there's a lot of very clever things done in the background. Things like her username on Ghost Message, or whatever it is Mm -hmm. that they use, which is um, Smith Corona is a type of typewriter, and it's a fun little nod there if you know that. But largely her role is to have that more obvious growth arc and to push other people into positions where they have to do the same sort of growing Mm -hmm. and in a sentence i didn't really think i was gonna have to say i think it's really well illustrated by the taco sausage
0: yeah well because at the beginning she's kind of with her eyes wide open planning to just settle into a similar sort of boring and banal existence like aster is She's willing to push her about it, but she's not really willing to push herself about it. Like, she pushes back on her English teacher trying to convince her to go to a liberal arts college where she can work on her writing, which is clearly something that's important to her. And she's decided she just has to stay there and take care of her dad forever and has decided that that'll be fine. And the taco sausage is this thing where, like, it sounds weird and it might not be good, but it also might be good, but also you don't need it. You know, and so like, it's not like you're feeling like you're going to miss out or your life will be terrible if you don't ever try this. And so she has no real interest in trying it. She has no real interest in in kind of stretching her horizons in that way. But it's important to her friends. So she does. And it's like, oh, actually, this is pretty good. And I think that's a big part of the whole thing of like, you need to try other stuff, even if it doesn't feel necessary That specific thing might not be, but the act of trying new things and stretching yourself and leaving your horizons open is important.
1: Yeah. And I appreciate that the thing that sort of drives her to go, okay, I'll try it, is realizing that Paul isn't getting that support elsewhere. Yeah. And then...
0: That his family has not tried it.
1: Yeah. And that then that has this domino effect where it means that her dad also ends up trying it. Mm-hmm. And it sort of represents, within the narrative of it, the point at which he starts considering other things as well.
0: Yeah, like just shaking things up. Like, it just shakes them both up a little bit.
1: Yeah, he starts taking Paul a little bit more seriously, starts actually communicating with him more, starts angrily throwing meat with him. What? Do you not remember that scene? We backed it up so you could watch it again.
0: I'm not quite sure. I Yeah, I know, but I'm trying to... What do you mean angrily?
1: Well, they sort of start throwing it harder and harder oh, to a sort it, it, of a challenge it's each angri- other? Angrily. I oh, think okay, it's just not-
0: like in this weird masculine crap, like this this testosterone contest thing. Yeah, that was funny. But yeah, he seems to have decided that Paul is Ellie's boyfriend. Yeah. Um, which is not correct. But he has correctly concluded that he's important to Ellie. Like, he's... Someone she's close to and has decided to welcome him basically into their lives and the family.
1: But it culminates in this really powerful scene of Paul and Ellie's dad having a conversation?
0: Sort of. It is a conversation, but it's not entirely a conversation.
1: It's not entirely a dialogue.
0: Yeah, that's that's right. It's conversation. It's not all a dialogue. You're right.
1: I really appreciate that scene for just the... Like, Paul's empathy in standing and listening to the conversation,
0: mm-hmm.
1: when he clearly doesn't understand what a lot of it is, but it seems to be important to him, mm-hmm. and that because we know that Paul doesn't understand what's being said, it becomes much more about, A, the audience learning about this character, but also it allows Ellie's dad to just have a processing moment on the screen. Yeah. You get to see him sort of work through it in real time.
0: Yeah. And so, in this scene that we're talking about, after Paul has found out Ellie had a crush on Aster as well and had that like knee jerk social programming response of that being gay is a sin, etc., and hasn't been speaking to her for a while or coming around for a little while while he tries to figure out how he feels about this new information, he comes to deliver sausage to their house, which sounds way more like it sounds like an innuendo, but it's not. Like, it's literally like a delivery of. Of actual food to the Chu's house, and her dad asks if they've broken up, and he says that they were never together. And it starts a conversation between the two of them that results in then her dad explaining in Chinese how things were for him and for Ellie after his wife died, and he's just sort of processing his response to that and the way he sort of let Ellie become the parent in a lot of ways and become an adult too much and you know much too soon for her age and while he was struggling with depression and trying to figure out what his life was after that point. And so you get to see him not only process that that's a thing that happened, but that at this point, he's at another turning point where he needs to figure out how to support her as she moves on and goes to college and that that's the thing she needs to do. And that's a thing he needs to be ready for. And it's really beautiful and very sad. And you can tell like Paul's there and doesn't know what he's saying at all because Paul doesn't speak Chinese. But he also at no point. Says, hey, can you speak English or I don't understand or anything like that? Because he, on some level, we know Paul has a lot of emotional and social intelligence. That's one of the through lines for his character. And he recognizes in this moment, it's not about him. It's not about him understanding her dad. It's about her dad getting through this moment of, as you say, processing.
1: Yeah. Well, it's also, it culminates in her dad asking in English, I think it's, have you ever loved someone so much that you don't want them to change? Yeah words to that effect and it's that if you love someone you have to accept that they will become a different person and that your view of them might not have been correct all along yeah and you have to be ready for that and i think that's part of what helps paul to come to accept ellie's sexuality and that and a weird google search
0: yeah which i think is another conversation about that google search just some of the, the phrasing he uses of like there are more ways to love so many more than I could have imagined or something like that. I forget the quote, but it very much says to me that he went down like a whole rabbit hole and it opened his mind to realize that he had a very narrow view of what relationships were and could be. I also do think it's hilarious that they do show that like he left the computer on the how do you know if you're gay search uh, and then his mom comes in. It's one of those things that's like, First of all, kind of hard to believe because I have a hard time believing any teenager of this time period makes that rookie mistake, but anyway.
1: I always thought there was one way to love, one right way, but there are more, so many more than I knew, and I never want to be the guy who stops loving someone for loving the way they want to love.
0: Yeah. Don't you know, do you see what I mean? Yeah. Like like uh, more than I knew, and that tells me that he learned about more than just It's okay to be gay or lesbian or have same-sex love. I think that he went beyond that in his rabbit hole of discovery of kinds of relationships and kinds of love.
1: Yeah, I think that's fair.
0: And came away from it with a much more inclusive perspective.
1: Which we sort of circled around this point a little bit now, but one of the things that I really love about this movie, and one of the things that I think makes it a little reductive to say it's Serrano de Bergerac but gay. Yeah, that um, is reductive is that there are characters in the movie that are LGBT. There are characters in the movie who are Chinese and do receive some racial hatred because of it and some cultural awkwardness because of it. But those traits don't define the characters and they don't define the story. It's largely incidental to the story. You could definitely write pretty much the exact same story without those factors. Mm Mm-hmm. But it means that they're just able to be there. And I'm really glad we've managed to get to that point.
0: Yeah, I appreciate that there are characters whose intersectional identity isn't fractured and chipped away or, like, pared down to only one facet. Like, Ellie is a person who is probably lesbian, but possibly something else. But she at least has same-sex attraction. But she is also someone who moved to this country when she was five and is bilingual And is Chinese and is one of the only Asian people in the community. The other, it appears, being her dad. And is subjected to racist bullying. It doesn't appear to rise to the level of being dangerous to her life. But it's certainly socially hurtful. And it doesn't seem to be a huge part of her life. But she's very much marginal in that community. And that's not something that this shies away from and doesn't try to pretend that she's like the only Chinese person, but she's a very popular or something.
1: Yeah. I remember when we were sitting down to watch the movie though, like I remember saying, I wonder whether this is going to, whether it's going to be a thing that there's an LGBT component to this Mm -hmm. or whether it will be entirely incidental and just sort of not commented upon whether we've got to that point yet where we can make that movie. Mm -hmm. And then... Same sex attraction comes up and Paul's response is like, but it's a sin. And I was like, okay, well, we haven't got to that point yet. But it's a long way to the fact that like, it's such a minor detail in the yeah. story. And... It's something that Paul has to go and deal with and come back. Mm-hmm. But it's not something, there's not a scene where Ellie goes, oh, no, I'm gay. Mm-hmm. Like the people who have issues with it are society and it's kind of their problem to deal with.
0: Yeah. And it's a thing in a way that would be weird for it to not be a thing in this setting. It's in small town, rural, somewhat close minded. Everyone's expected to kind of take over the family business America. And yeah, that's a pocket of this country, along with a lot of the country in general, where there are people whose knee jerk reaction to hearing that someone is gay is to go, oh, well, then you're going to hell."
1: Yeah. And that's what I do like about it is that it does... It portrays it realistically. It doesn't try and, like, whitewash the issues to pretend that everything would be perfect. Mm -hmm. But it isn't the defining point of the story and it isn't the defining point of any of the characters. Yeah. And, like, with the conversation with Astra at the end where she's like, well, I'm not that way, probably, Mm -hmm. maybe? There's an open door there.
0: Yeah, well, and she also says, I've thought about it.
1: I feel like we could just talk about little parts of this And, like, little details here and there for many, many hours, however, we should probably try and stave that impulse.
0: Yeah, but as far as what you're talking about, where, like, every- her Chinese identity and, like, Aster's position as being a member of what also seems to maybe be the only Spanish-speaking family in the community, even though she's integrated pretty well into the dominant white culture, is- just a part of their identity but it's not like it's harped on it is integrated well it's just part of the story and part of who the characters are they're full characters in that way yeah and there's an interview with alice Wu discussing like that that thread that ties the two of them together is also a part of it particularly with aster also having that passing privilege of being being in this position where she's not necessarily immediately noticed or remarked upon socially as being different from anyone else.
1: Yeah. Well I mean another small detail is the choice for Asta's ghost message. I keep wanting to call it ghost network. It's not
0: Diego Rivera.
1: Yeah, he's a large oh. part of like the growth of Mexican murals and things, which that obviously ties in with the mural that they draw together and things. Yeah.
0: And it seems to be Potentially a name she might have chosen after that exercise. Yeah. Because we don't see her handle before that point. It seems like she may have just made the account to have yeah. that those conversations, and so maybe chose something that she felt tied to both that experience and her heritage.
1: So I think sort of the last bigger part I want to talk about was just Paul as a character, and sort of how some of his relationships with other characters play out. Mm-hmm. We talked a little bit about the different sorts of intelligence that the characters have. And you mentioned before that Paul has a lot of emotional social intelligence. Mm -hmm. Like, he's not particularly book smart at the start of the film. Mm -hmm. But definitely with tutoring, clearly isn't stupid. He just struggles to communicate clearly. Yeah. But the way that Ellie's friendship with him builds, I think, is really interesting. Like, Ellie is so devoid of some of the social intelligence that she doesn't seem to understand that he might care about her well-being at all Mm -hmm. until the point that he's like telling the bullies to fuck off Mm -hmm. at which point she's like oh oh right okay this is a maybe friends thing is this friends is this what friends are
0: yeah um it's kind of adorable but also kind of sad yeah he clearly has had friends before and he knows how friendships work and is providing, you know, his end of the friendship. And she has kind of treated it all as sort of a business relationship, which is how it, to be fair, started as him offering to pay her for something.
1: Which is interesting. That gets to the point where she's like, no, I'm not going to take your money for this. And he's like, no, no, no. I said, I'd pay you for this sort of thing. So, um, but that developing in some very like healthy and sweet ways Mm -hmm. with, how he acts with her at the party yeah. and caring for her there, seeing her at the talent show mm-hmm. and that someone's messed with her piano and sort of providing the guitar because yeah. he's been listening creepily outside her window <laughs> And knows I don't even she...
0: know that it's creepy. Like, he yeah. lives across the street from her. And
1: takes the trash out and yeah. happened to hear it. Yes, yeah.
0: But... So he hears her playing guitar when he takes the trash out and he has stopped to listen sometimes because it's his friend. I feel like any of us who lived across the street from a friend who, like, we would do for that, probably. But, yeah, and even uh, back to the party, like, it's not even just that he takes care of her, like, makes sure he takes her home Before she's had too, too much to drink and, like, has the note for her with the medicine to be, like, take this and stuff. But even, like, during the party when she's socializing with other people, like, he is not threatened in any way by her making new friendships and hanging out with other people. And they're not hanging out together at this party. They're off each doing their own things socially. And he's just kind of keeping an eye on her because he knows that she's not had much experience drinking or at parties. He's just keeping an eye on her as a good friend. But he's very much not hovering or in- inhibiting her socially in any way. And I find- found that really sweet too. Yeah. Like, I feel like you could have had it where he's helicopter parenting her a little bit, but they don't do that.
1: And I think that that sort of, like, learning how friendships work... Stuff sort of helps Ellie to go on the trip with Asta to the Hot Springs in a less weird way. Mm -hmm. Obviously, there's some slightly weird aspects to that once they get there.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, She's wearing, like, five shirts or something, which doesn't even make sense. Why would she be wearing that many shirts to begin with? (laughs)
1: Because she's a Russian doll of clothing. Yeah. The whole friendship with Paul thing does get a little bit tarnished by his attempt to kiss her. Yeah. Which is... A, a bit of a shame that there's the tarnish when, like, so much of it is clearly just friendship. Yeah. But it's also an interesting note to the making the bold stroke and risking ruining the painting yeah. side of things.
0: He's never had a problem with that.
1: Right. And, and he, he makes the bold stroke and does risk ruining the nice painting. Mm-hmm. But he, he does still manage to save the nice painting at the end. hmm Which I think is reflective in the way that, like, He gets shut down in that situation, realizes what's been going on, and his reaction isn't anger, but to go and evaluate and to research Mm -hmm. being gay.
0: Yeah. Well, and he doesn't even seem angry in the moment. He seems concerned. Like, he's worried for her and what that might mean. It's not, you're gay and I'm mad about it. It's, I'm gay and I'm worried about you burning in hell, like... I want to save you, which is the whole thing that, you know, a lot of people claim that those feelings are coming from. And I think for a lot of people they are, but they're still misguided. But he's not mad at her for being interested in Aster.
1: Yeah, but I think he feels stupid for
0: it. He does feel stupid and that's hurtful to him. Like that hurts, which is understandable. And it's a thing that had come up before a little bit, sort of, but it had sort of been smoothed over.
1: Oh, with the, like her talking about what, love is like and yeah and it very much how beautiful aster is
0: yeah and it very much seems like she's sort of in love with aster and he puts that piece together but then she sort of reassures him that that's not the case and so then when that comes up later i think he feels extra stupid because he did kind of know and he let himself be talked out well i
1: don't think that he thinks that that's because she's in love with him i don't think that crosses his mind as much i think it's more he's like oh yeah, that's how you should sound, and you can just imitate it, and I'm feeling it, and I can't even sound that way. Mm, It's how I read that scene.
0: I thought that he was concluding that she was into Aster.
1: Mm. We'll have to go and watch it again. Damn. (laughs) But he's a very well-put-together character for the film, with the whole situation with his family explaining so much about him in such a non-toxic way is that what i want to say
0: yeah i mean it's kind of sad but like you don't get the impression that anyone has been like out to have him never be heard or anything yeah it's sort of like you know an emergent property of the household that he kind of ends up getting overlooked a lot yeah because there's there's just so much going on
1: there's a lot of people who are louder than him Mm -hmm. and were around before him and that consideration just isn't taken yeah. He finally gets the chance to mention that maybe they should change the recipe for the sausage when his mother is concerned that he might be gay.
0: Yeah. So Just... he he does something very attention getting and that gives him an opening.
1: <laughs> I mean not intentionally.
0: <laughs> no, I didn't say intentionally, but it is it gets a lot of attention.
1: But that sort of like feeling that nobody really cares what he's saying, he's bullied in a very natural way by his brothers. Mm -hmm. Like, they sort of mock him for, like, taking the trash out and taking too long and things. And that is always his job, to take the trash out. And it's just sort of generally eroded his confidence.
0: So I wonder if there is intentionally an implication, like, a somewhat subtle implication, that maybe Paul's family are coming from this, like, quiverful perspective. Some evangelical Christians believe that you should have as many kids as possible. Like, you should have lots of children and raise them to be christian evangelicals and that each one is like an arrow in your quiver as far as like i guess out populating other people or like is a basically an opportunity for them to then also grow and spread the word and have lots of kids who'll be christians and sort of thing and i say this because they have a lot of kids he's the fourth there and just his knee-jerk reaction to being asked if he believes in god is of course and to finding out about his friend's same-sex attraction is that it's a sin and it's just... The pieces are there. I don't know if it's intentional, but it wouldn't surprise me if it was, you know?
1: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, the community as a whole is very centered around religion. That's true. And those assumptions. Like, I think Aster recognizes, like, already knows who Ellie is. Mm-hmm. And Ellie's surprised by this. And he's like, you're my dad's favorite heathen. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the kind of community that they live in. So I don't think it's a stretch to say that they might be quiverful.
0: But regardless of whether that's intended or not, like, I do appreciate that there is the clarification, however watered down it is, that his mom would still love him if he was gay. Like, it's it's watered down kind of by the fact that he's like, I'm not, and she's like, oh, thank God. But the fact that she even does take that step is important because there's a lot of parents that wouldn't in communities like this and out of them.
1: Yeah. I think also... Speaks very highly of Paul, that coming from that background, his reaction might knee-jerk be, but that's a sin, to then Mm -hmm. go and be like, okay, maybe it isn't, and maybe people should be allowed to love the way they are in such a short time span. Yeah. So I think that's most of the main points that we want to talk about. And I think the big question is something that we sort of danced around a little bit earlier on in the episode, but why is the movie called The Half of It?
0: Well, I would say my answer is that it's a couple of reasons. There's, first of all, there's the Plato reference, obviously, where, like, each of these people are kind of, from that origin myth, like, half of a person, and, like, sort of trying to find or woo their other half. But I don't think it's just that, because I think it's also in greater part, because everyone's making assumptions about everyone else, and, like, the community sort of assumes what people's life's, lives are going to be, and, like, sort of sets a path for everyone. but. They don't know the half of what each other are going through. And I think that's most clearly demonstrated through Astor's monologue about what it is like to be a pretty person and just her reflections on her life. Because it's, you might think you know her and that you know who she is and what her life will amount to from watching her in her place in high school, etc., but you don't actually know the half of what's going on in her mind and what she's thinking about and what she wants and what she might do. And it's the same thing for all of them. Except maybe Trig, who you probably do know the whole of it,
1: honestly. He might have unexamined depths.
0: <laughs> he probably doesn't, but he's certainly <laughs> depicted as not
1: doing. He's actually an avid Lego collector.
0: i believe that. <laughs> He seems to be kind of befuddled by any suggestion of anything that is remotely unconnected to his idea of himself and his place in the world. Like he assumes that Ellie has a crush on him when there's really no evidence for that. And I do think that there's some subtext of why we're supposed to hand wave away that Aster is going and having these dates with Paul when everyone seems to believe she's in such a relationship with Treg that he's expected to propose at any minute now, including by her, and yet no one seems to be concerned that this is cheating, and I do think that it's implied that he just sort of assumed she was his girlfriend and no one challenged it, you
1: know? Yeah. I keep going back and forth on that. I think it could go either way.
0: I mean, if it is that she's making a mistake and being terrible and cheating on him, that's also consistent with the other stuff. They're all kind of making a shitty moral choice in this Cyrano situation and that could be her shitty choice is being receptive to the advances when she's already in a relationship I do think that works but yeah so just the half of it I think there's just lots of parts of things going on with that that work with that title
1: so what you're saying is you don't think it's about the second half of the football game that's so central to the plot then?
0: nope I don't think it's about that at all. Okay. I think it's a reference to- There goes my answer. Yeah, I think it's a reference to the origin of love and the fact that everyone kind of thinks they know who these people are until they actually become friends with them and then realize that there's a a lot of interiority and complexity there that they didn't recognize before they were actually friends.
1: Yeah, I think that there's probably an extension of those points with, to an extent, them not knowing the half of themselves
0: Yeah, I think I like that. That's Um, also, I think, probably relevant.
1: In that same sort of way as like finding the other half of yourself and sort of Mm self-examination rather than it being about soulmates in that situation. Mm -hmm. I think there's a nice several layers to it there. But Mm -hmm. I think it's all sort of around those couple of points. It's a clever name.
0: It is. It works well in a few different ways.
1: Which is something you could say of most of the movie, really, is that there's... There's a lot of clever little layers and details woven in there.
0: Yeah, and it's all packaged together and, like, woven together very elegantly. Yeah. So I think that's a pretty good, if brief, answer to the big question. But I think the bigger question is, which is more unbelievable? The clear uh, budget and production level for Trigg's performance at the mandatory talent show in a very small high school in, like, the middle of Washington State? Or... That that team had not scored a single goal in 15 years. Ooh. We've acknowledged that this is actually an excellent and thematically appropriate choice to have in the movie, the, the goal thing. Still beggars <laughs> belief a little bit, is what I'm saying.
1: So suddenly both of those questions, those points did give me pause in the movie. <laughs> um
0: He had fucking um uh, like uh it's fireworks what are they called when they're on stage
1: pyrotechnics
0: yes that's it did he have
1: pyrotechnics as I well I think
0: he you... did have pyrotechnics
1: just the number of lights the wireless mm-hmm. guitar the headset all that so as someone who's done like backstage work at a high school in a sort of similar sized town mm-hmm. like no yeah frankly <laughs> um yeah but I do also believe that Trig paid for it mm. like I believe that Trigg turned up with a lot of that stuff or like paid someone to turn up with a lot of that stuff.
0: Like rented that stuff for the talent show. It is his senior year. and
1: I, I suspect that his dad is like the kind of person where if he's like, I want to do this, it will be like, fine. Like, here's the money for it. Get someone to do it. I don't think that Trigg knows how to wire up a wireless guitar thing, but. Yeah. That's the technical term in case you were wondering. So because I assume that Trigg paid for it, I do think the football thing is less believable. Mm-hmm. Uh, otherwise, it would be the other way around. So.
0: Okay, yeah, the especially for the size of town and high school, it is just like there is no way that like the town slash school board or whatever was paying for that. Just no way. I've been to schools that had like a really high level of production for like their theater department. Uh, like I've gone to like a high school production of Les Mis at Morey High School in Norfolk that had like rotating sets and stuff it was crazy but their theatrical department was well known it's a department that routinely goes to like big competitions et cetera. like that's why they are funded like that and for this very tiny town to have all that stuff mm, no we
1: didn't talk about ellie's song
0: mm, clearly about her
1: mom didn't talk about her mom I- as i say like it's this weird thing where i'm like we we talked for a decent amount of time, and they still have a lot more to say about this film. Uh, I don't know that there's as much depth to some of those things. yeah. And we are trying to keep these short.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, I think with her mom, like it's it's fairly evident that, you know, she was the one who was fun. So was that, like, spark of trying new things and being silly in their lives, and is part of why they are just kind of going through routines after that she's gone. So for, like, fun facts or interesting tangents, just a random thing that... I was thinking about in conjunction with like the Beauty and the Beast and Half of It comparison is that in Beauty and the Beast, there's like the triplet, like the Disney movie. They're like the blonde triplets who are fawning over Gaston and like don't understand why Belle wouldn't be interested in him. And in this movie, there are also like three or four blonde girls who fawn over Trig and want to have Aster be like included in and co-signing all of their like click stuff
1: mm. um
0: and I, I do think that parallel is probably intentional i don't know if it is but i hope that it is because i, yeah. I think that parallel works very well with like the guest on trig thing with astra being bell but being a bell who's more trapped by social pressure than bell and beauty and the beast at the
1: beginning yeah that's fair i probably need to go and watch beauty and the beast again
0: yeah, Like, I could totally imagine there being a scene of Trigg doing a commercial where he's doing a, a deadlift of them on a bench, yeah, the way Gaston yeah. does in that opening number. Yeah. And they could be like, ah, in the way that the triplets in Beauty of the Beast do.
1: <laughs> and then he goes, bye, Garson's gravel.
0: <laughs> yes, exactly.
1: Uh, okay, I think that wraps up the episode. It does feel like we could do another episode on this movie, but...
0: It's a very good film. it is it
1: It didn't really seem like it was going to be my sort of thing i'm very glad we did watch it Mm -hmm. and we might go and check out alice Wu's other film saving face Mm -hmm. which is from 2004 i think uh which is supposed to also be very good you might have noticed that we've been doing a lot of movies lately the past few weeks we're sort of preparing to do something that i don't think we've talked about on the podcast yet so i'll keep it a little bit of a surprise but we're going to be doing a sort of bigger three-part thing coming up and there'll be some different stuff going on with that So that's why there's been so many movies while we get things in place for that. We will be going back to doing some more books and TV series soon, I promise. Thank you for listening to this. If you enjoyed it, then please do go and check out our Patreon. The $1 level lets you join our Discord and our live recordings. There's also the pre-rambles, the bonus episodes you can get through Patreon. We have ended up tying each episode and pre-ramble together through a shared theme. And the fun quiz is, guess what it is? So if you go and listen to that and let us know what you think the theme was that brought them together and we'll tell you if you were right. You can find us on all the social medias that are down in the show notes below. Uh, We're about to start listening to music if we haven't done already. That's uh, Magic in the Mundane by our dear friend Mike Bassington. You can now listen to the entirety of that track on our YouTube channel. If you go to YouTube and search Unramblings that will pop up.
0: Thanks for listening to Unramblings. We hope that you'll join us next time. Thanks for listening to Unrambling. So we hope that you'll join us next time.
1: I wasn't done, but okay.
0: (laughs) You were looking at me like I was supposed to say.
1: Oh, I I was just pausing, trying to remember the next
0: thing. Oh, okay. Well then go ahead and say the next thing and I'll put my thing at the end.